This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archived material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. As a Dubliner, there was little I could be proud of in the history of my native city, which up to 1913 had for the most part been the centre of British oppression in Ireland. That's Jimmy Stevenson, reading an extract from his grandfather Paddy Joe Stevenson's memoir. Paddy Joe was a librarian, not exactly a profession you'd associate with the action and danger of life as an Irish volunteer, but it provided good cover for him. I did not join the Irish volunteers on their foundation in 1913. I was on late duty in the Thomas Street Library the night of the foundation in the rink in Rotunda Gardens, and so I missed taking part in that famous event. The split in the volunteers and the continued sight of my friends and acquaintances marching and drilling proved irresistible, and one evening, early in 1914, I went to number 5 Blackhall Street and joined D Company of the 1st Battalion of the Irish Volunteers. I left that night full, for the first time in my long life of 20 years, of a sense of belonging to something worthwhile. Paddy Joe was a diligent and active volunteer and he was quickly promoted to the rank of quartermaster in charge of procuring and storing weapons and ammunition for his company. On one occasion, he accompanied Captain Sean Houston to Kingsbridge Station, which would later be named after the young captain who was executed after the rising. A train had just pulled in and a party of British Tommies were getting out of their carriages. They threw their kit bags and equipment in a heap on the platform and left their rifles resting against the station wall. I watched Sean march down along the platform until he reached the spot where the rifles were leaning against the wall. With a quick look around, he opened his overcoat, whipped up a rifle and marched back out of the station. D Company received a tip-off about a soldier who had returned from the trenches and wanted to desert. We found a young lad dressed in khaki and sitting huddled up beside a roaring fire in the front room of a small house. He looked a picture of misery, and his uniform was still mud-stained. He told us he wanted to desert, and wanted to get rid of his equipment. We got a Lee Enfield and a short bayonet, a set of web equipment with pouches full of 303 clips, and a sniper's canvas sling. We shook hands with the woman and the boy, and returned to Blackhall Street. These activities ensured D Company was well prepared for an armed revolt, which finally transpired one sunny bank holiday morning in Easter 1916. The egg I got was hard-boiled and was no sooner down than it made me ill. However, I got no time to be sorry for myself, for Sean ordered me to go to Liberty Hall. James Connolly was standing on the steps. His hands were clasped behind his back, and he looked straight across at the customs house. He rocked gently back and forth on his heels. He seemed without a care in the world, and I would not like to have to swear that he was not humming a tune under his breath. Later that morning, Liberty Hall was becoming a hive of activity as word of mobilisation spread and the battalion swung into action. Resting on the Eden Quay corner was members of the Citizen Army, most of them in their olive green uniform with black leather equipment and dashing slouch hats turned up at the side in a very jaunty way. The soldierly effect of the uniform was being spoiled by blue check cotton haversacks, which some of them carried across one shoulder. They had what seemed to be a large number of the now famous Hoth Mausers. 
Sean Houston led his company down the quays, the men still uncertain about what the object of the mobilisation was. As they marched further along the river, concerns grew that it had been called off again. However, as they reached the Mendicity Institution, one of Ireland's oldest charities and a source of relief for many of Dublin's poor, the situation suddenly became clear to the men. Just then, Sean turned right about, faced us, and shouted, Company, left wheel, seize this building and hold it in the name of the Irish Republic. They took the building and immediately set about fortifying it against an attack they knew would eventually come. Paddy Joe broke the glass in the windows and barricaded them with furniture. As I wiped the sweat off my face, I looked out through the windows, and there, with his elbows resting on the stone plinth of the front wall, was a tall DMP man. Under the dark blue helmet, with its silver facing, there was a big soft face with big blue eyes, like that of an ox. His big mouth was wide open with astonishment. After a minute, he raised his voice and shouted in a broad country accent, You fellows are going too far with this playing at soldiers. Don't you know you can be arrested for what yous are doing? The unconscious humour of his remarks struck me as very funny, and I burst out laughing. A voice from some other part of the building shouted, You big Egypt, don't you know that the Republic has been proclaimed and your bloody day is done? And punctuated his remarks by firing off a round. The sound of the revolver galvanised the peeler into action and he shot down the keys so quickly that his helmet fell off his head. A tense interval followed. The men knew the GPO was being taken and the proclamation was to be read at noon. Their anticipation reached an end when they saw a column of Royal Dublin Fusiliers marching into town on the far side of the river. No one was to fire until Houston's order, but the strain became too much for one man. Someone downstairs fired. The reaction of the rest of us was instantaneous, and we all let go. If Sean Houston blew his whistle, its sound was lost in the thundering reverberations that beat about our ears as the echo of the rifle explosions came back across the river from the houses opposite. I fired with the rest at nothing in particular and I emptied the magazine of the Lee Enfield in a wild, unaimed burst of firing, quite automatically. The soldiers took cover in a tram and Paddy Joe first experienced the grim realities of combat as he spotted one of them crawling along underneath it. The crawling stopped instantaneously with the sound of the shot. For a long while, this kind of target practice went on without a single shot from the tram as it stood there mute and immobile. In those first short, sharp minutes, we had been made into soldiers. The first round was to us. The action was now clearly underway and the sounds of battle could be heard across the city. The staccato bark of the machine gun fire was now and again punctuated by a deep heavy boom which gave rise to the idea that the British were already using artillery and a slight depression of spirits following on this thought gave place to the great jubilation when someone identified the sound as that of the old Hoth gun. The soldiers retreated from the tram, regrouped and returned fire on the small band of men occupying the mendicity, turning a machine gun on them. We were down under the cover of the windowsills in a flash, and for a while lay there stunned by the appalling din 
as the machine gun continued to rake the front of the building without ceasing. It seemed as if some giant steel whip was lashing the stonework with a tremendous vindictiveness. Houston shouted to us to hold our fire, but in truth, all we could do was watch the back walls of the room being riddled with bullet holes and the plaster float around the room in a fine grey mist. It became apparent that the men's position was vulnerable against attack and they prepared themselves for assault when they saw British troops moving down the river. However, luckily, they passed the building by, to Paddy Joe's relief. I relieved myself of the weight of the bomb, thinking to myself that if the bomb would not blow up, it was at least heavy enough to knock out a Tommy if you got him in the right place. Houston sent Paddy Joe and his friend Sean McLaughlin out on a foray to the GPO for supplies and, if possible, reinforcements. As they ran down the road, they came under heavy fire. When we became aware of bullet holes appearing about 10 feet above our heads in the distillery wall facing us, a quick look to the rear as we ran revealed that a dip in the road surface had taken us down out of the field of fire. We slowed down to a walk and enjoyed the spectacle of the bullet holes appearing in increasing numbers on the wall in front of us. They made it across the city where access to the GPO was gained via the Wax Museum on Henry Street. Inside the waxworks, a figure dressed up in the uniform of the Emperor of Austria stalked around in a parody of imperial dignity to the accompaniment of ribald laughter as he sloped and presented arms with a haute rifle. In the GPO, they washed and obtained supplies for the Mendicity garrison. However, on their return, they found that Houston and the rest of their company had been attacked and captured in their absence. Disheartened, they joined the Fourcourt's garrison, trying to find comfort in the fact that they were still free to fight on behalf of D Company and Sean Houston. At the back of our minds was the thought that when the British did attack the courts, they would get more than they bargained for, and that we would have a whack at them for Houston and the garrison of the Mendicity. When the Fourcourts fell later that week, Paddy Joe was interned in Frongok and released later that year. He went on to take an active role in the War of Independence and later became the Dublin City Librarian. In later life, he headed the campaign to renovate Kilmainham Jail as a national monument. For more on Paddy Joe Stevenson and other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, visit www.storiesfrom1916.com. Thanks for listening.